our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Veritas, because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I think it's time to open the books on the question of government investigations of UFOs. Uh, we ought to do it really because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people, quite frankly, can handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. Be skeptical. Do be as skeptical as you want, but by all, don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of the Veritas Show, where you listen because you don't want to believe, you listen because you want to know. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for tuning in once again. This is episode number 18. Tonight's special guest is David Sarita, harmonic codes, anti-gravity, the mathematics of the pyramids, communication with extraterrestrials, his new film, Mona Lisa's Little Secret, and more. I would like to remind you that all our past shows are available to you 24-7, right on our website, VeritasShow.com. Veritas is available on Fridays on our website and through the following affiliates. K-Rock's Zero Point Radio, the Black Vault Radio Network, and the Paranormal Radio Network, UPRN 105.8 FM, New Orleans. Listen to The Veritas Show on iTunes and RSS feeds throughout cyberspace. And if you listen through iTunes, please remember to rate us. We are heard in 114 countries and growing. If you need to get in touch with me or send questions to our future guests, send an email to mail at veritasshow.com or just head to our website and click on the contact button. There are many ways to interact and be up to date with Veritas. The Manticore Forum, which you can reach by going to our homepage and clicking on the forum or simply by going to manticore.com or by joining the Veritas Show group on Facebook. And let me share with you our upcoming guests in order of appearance. Paula Harris, Catherine Austin Fitz, James Fox, Dr. Fred Bell, and Nick Pope. For the dates, just go to our website. Nice. 
And now, to some news. The Exophiles. Cosmic politics? To believers, no idea is alien. Former astronaut. Man not alone in the universe. Senate proposal could put heavy restrictions on internet freedoms. British government secretly studies crop circles and UFO connection. Those were only the headlines. For the rest of the story, go to our website and click on blog. And now I want to share with you an AOL news poll which included almost half a million people. There are three questions. The first one, do you think extraterrestrial beings have visited Earth? 73% said yes, 17% said no, 10% undecided. The other question, do you think the government is trying to cover up the existence of extraterrestrial life? 76% said yes, 15% said no, and 9% undecided. And the last question, have you ever seen a UFO? 75% said no, and 25% said yes. Given the result of these polls so far, one cannot help but conclude that mankind is ready for this closure. What do you think? And the following is for members of our forum only, manticore.com. And by the way, you can simply join by going to the website and clicking on register. It only takes a few seconds. A few years ago, I received some files, actually some FBI and CIA declassified files on three people, Werner von Braun, Albert Einstein, and Nikola Tesla. So if you want to know their history from the moment they stepped on U.S. soil, head to our forum by going to our website or going to manticore.com. Again, registration is free and it only takes a few seconds. Only registered users can read these documents and each file is about 90 pages long. So I'll be posting them slowly. There's a lot of information on these three men. And now, get ready for a journey to subjects that are considered taboo for many. The harmonic codes, anti-gravity, the mathematics of the pyramids, stargates, communication with extraterrestrials, Mona Lisa's little secret, and much more. Our special guest, David Sarita, will join us when we come back. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. If you want to know the answers, don't go anywhere. And you're listening to The Veritas Show. David Sarita's first aspiration in life was to become an astronaut. In 1968, David and a friend witnessed a UFO along with hundreds of other witnesses. After this experience, David grew up as a UFO enthusiast, never living in doubt of the phenomena that has swept the world since the Roswell incident in 1947. His interest in space, religion, philosophy, 
astronomy, and science led him on his career in related fields. He has worked deeply in high technology, on environmental and humanitarian issues, and as a professional photographer for over 20 years. He has studied world religion, science, physics, and paranormal psychology for over 25 years. Directly from Sedona, Arizona, David Sarita. Hello, David, and thank you for joining us on the first time on The Veritas Show. How are you? Good, Mel. Um, thank you very much for having me on your show. I think this is our first show together, right? That's right, and I hope it's, it won't be the last. It's our pleasure having you on, and so that you know, the list of series researchers who have been on this show and will be on this show wouldn't be complete without you. Well, that's great. That's great to hear. David, you have one of the most eclectic minds I know, and I think that's one of the reasons why I chose you to be on. You're also one of the favorite guests on Coast to Coast AM, and I know you will be here too. You do research in so many areas, and we'll get into those areas shortly. But first, we always do this for those guests who haven't been with us before. It's almost like a common denominator that something in early life happens that changes the course of many people's lives. I believe it all started for you back in 1968, but now, please tell me, you were not seven years old. I was seven years old in 1968, yeah. The reason why I ask you is because you have no idea how many I talk to and our guests that come on the show and talk about their first experience happening at seven years old. I had an indirect experience at seven, and it's what kept me going nonstop. Now, tell us your history, your background, and how it came to influence you your current philosophies? Well, you know, I was born in 1961 in August 21st in Alberta, Canada. And my father was, you know, a hockey player back then. And we, my mom was, you know, just, uh, you know, starting her life. And she had four sons. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the dream of my father changed about hockey. And my grandfather was furious because he was playing with a lot of the pros that, are, that were out there for, you know, many decades. And right. when he moved to Berkeley, California in the 60s to be, he be, to, for him to become a psychologist. And there we were all growing up in this university village, uh, my mom and my brothers and I, in the middle of the riots, you know, from the Vietnam War protests. And, and we got exposed to a lot of that. I even remember the tear gas, you know, riots and, and nude rock festivals. I mean, a lot of crazy stuff. And, and, I, and my memory is flawless. I can, you know, pick, you know, multiple days and events that, that actually happened. And back in those days, parents let their children walk home alone from school, which is something, you know, a lot of people don't even think about exactly. today. And there I am walking home from school from uh, Cornell Elementary School in the East Bay. It's, it's in a district called Albany, you know, Kitty Corner, Berkeley. And I notice everybody's pointing up in the sky at a flying saucer, and they're going crazy. I mean, it's not the Goodyear blimp. You know, I built model airplanes as a kid and and model cars and, you know, with those Ravel model kits and Right. And I knew exactly what I was looking at. I mean, I was looking at something that was like the Starship Enterprise. It was shimmering. There were no markings. It was down low. It had the little dome on the top of the disc. And, you know, for a full 20 minutes, and I'm amazed that, you know, the Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, which I learned in my you know later wife was up on the hill, would have had a perfect view of it. And then, of course, there was, you know, there was no military presence. So obviously this thing wasn't picked up on radar. And people were in pandemonium. Like, I couldn't believe the, the reaction to the people. And they were knocking on neighbors' doors, telling them to come out, get out here, you've got to see this thing. And it just, after 20 full minutes, it blinked out. And, and it went invisible in a blink of an eye. And 
And the pursuing days, I told my mom and you know my and my dad, who had um, actually were in the middle of their divorce, and, and what had happened. And eventually, you know, right in that time, my mom was you know getting married to an, uh, would would marry a science teacher, who was an ex-military man. And we moved to a new house in the Berkeley Hills, and that's where I started to have contact experiences. And I was having dreams about the propulsion system, you know, one set of lights spinning clockwise and one going anti-clockwise on the same axis. And then I, I remember I had one, you know, what you would call, not an abduction, but it was a contact experience. I, I don't remember. I just remember my body being paralyzed and not being able to move. And, you know, we had a babysitter, and I screamed my head off, you know, trying to come out of this paralysis. But I don't remember them being, you know, malevolent. They were very kind. They were they were teaching me things, but I just wasn't ready at that age to be paralyzed and, and have myself, you know, in the presence of these beings. And then I would play hide-and-go-seek when we moved to San Francisco, up near Diamond Heights. Um, and when I counted to 100 while everyone was hiding, I was looking at the Pleiades, and I, I didn't even know the name of that star system. I didn't know what it was, why my eyes would lock on that system. And then, of course, many years later, you know, in 1972, my mom divorced again. We went back to live with our real father in Vancouver, Canada. And it was there that I saw my first news broadcast about the Billy Meyer, you know, incident. And I said, oh, my mm-hmm. God, this is on TV. That's what I saw. And, and you know, oh, my God, why is it on TV? And, and then it took me years to realize this was a worldwide phenomenon. And what happens is, you know, my uncle's a Superior Court judge in, in Ottawa, you know, Brian Trafford, and my mom is a lawyer. My dad's a PhD in psychology. And how an event like this, you know, shape, you know, shapes my life is that I can't go down that road. I can't go down the straight and narrow. My parents just think, oh, well, it's no big deal. He saw flying saucer. I don't talk about it that much. But they don't realize that it literally drives me away from mainstream education. You know, I became a rebel in school, and I had a real hard time with people telling me what I was going to learn and how they were going to shape my mind. I was really rebellious, and I started doing my own studies, you know, after high school and, you know, eventually, you know, getting my hands on all of this alternative material because I wanted answers. And my father started teaching me meditation. By the time I was 18, I was meditating every single day, and I started to get the benefits of the meditation practice. And we were all Catholics, but not, you know, my mother was one of those tormented Catholics who was beaten by nuns when she was a young girl, so you know, she hated the church. Sure. And my father was Greek Orthodox, I think, uh, well, Sarita's Ukrainian, so his side of the family came from the Ukraine in the old days, and they were they were Russian or Greek Orthodox. So Russian were Orthodox, allowed, yeah. They were allowed to marry in that church, so, you know, they were. it was a much more friendly Catholic church. And so... My dad, you know, taught me meditation, taught me all these things, and I began having very powerful mystical experiences that uh, culminate in the, in the year 1994. I had three encounters with Christ blazing like a thousand suns. And after I had, you know, to make a long story short, met most of the gurus of India and meditated with them, many of which I still love today, and the Dalai Lama, I went to India and studied with him. After meeting Christ, I was just blown away. That the Christ was the king. He truly is the greatest saint. Or forget saint. He, to me, he was God incarnated in, in the flesh. Jesus embodied the totality of the, of, the, of the entire cosmos. I couldn't even look at his face for more than a second. I fell flat on my face you know, upon the visions and physically could not even stand up in his presence. 
because of how powerful you know the the aura or the field of the of the universal consciousness that Jesus beheld, and I had never experienced anything anywhere near that in the presence of other masters. So this began upon seeing Christ the first time in in October of ninety four during one of the worst years of my life, and then again on Easter morning, 1997, and then the last time I saw him was 1999. I mean, blazing in the second time, like 10,000 suns, and the ecstasy and the love and the peace and the power and the beauty and the graces were were much brighter than the light itself. Now, when David, looked, is, this some, yeah. is this something that happens while you are meditating? No, I wasn't sitting in meditation. I mean, practicing meditation every day can, can set a, a space so that you can become a conduit to have an experience like this. I didn't will it. I never asked to meet Christ. I was taught by my father that he was a great saint among many other saints in the world. But my experience of Christ was simply that it was so utterly astounding, the, the power of this one being, it's kind of like if you think of the Big Bang, that the universe started from this infinitesimally small point, and that small point eventually becomes the whole universe. The body of Christ that appears in the human form is like the seed, that is, is really the entire thing. It's so overwhelming that no human could see it. And the first words he spoke to me is, I have appeared to a number of people throughout the universe, but at different levels of their spiritual ability. No one has ever seen me in my entirety. It is not possible at this time. And he said, even now, what you're seeing of me is not my entirety. It's just what you're able to see. I mean, that was basically what he was telling me. So even all the apparitions and the transfigurations were merely adjustments that the Supreme Being made so that we would think we were seeing Christ in the human form to think that Christ was was human. And there is a sense of Christ consciousness that's available to the humans and to the saints, but it's not, um, and ultimately this consciousness is nameless and boundless and transcends religion and race and all of these things. So, so I don't believe that if, if a Hindu or a Buddhist attains this supernatural illumination, that illumination is God consciousness. It's it's the same thing, but the difference for me was this the, the, the actual personality of Christ is just simply utterly astounding. I mean, you're talking supernovas would pale in comparison to what I saw. So what happened next was, within days, I had the ability to see the dead, to see invisible beings with my eyes open. And, and it was so shocking to see tens of people around me in the middle of the night, you know, standing there looking at me and going... You know, this happened like the next two days after my first visit with Christ, and this where, was gone. What's that? Were you vibrating? Were you vibrating at a different frequency, and that's why you were probably tapping into a different dimension? I think so. I think he, Jesus, did something to me that just opened my inner eye and allowed me to see. I mean, I can't see everything. I've only seen two ghosts in the daytime and one of the names of them is quite shocking, but um, I see them in full form. Like, I don't see foggy, hazy, you know, luminous kind of beings. I don't intuit the picture in my third eye and say I'm getting a sense that Einstein is here or something like that. I actually mm. see them, like, as real as anybody sees a human being. Usually their feet are never touching the ground. They're, they're hovering. Yeah. Do you interact with them? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I put my hands right through them. I've seen hundreds, and not all of them are human beings that were deceased. Many of them are masters. Some are spherical beings of light that have spoken perfect English to me. Um, some of them are just big, um, you know, amazing architectures that are clearly uh, intelligent, like they're not human shape. Um, I've seen all kinds of things. And What have it, they told you? Well, there's so many of them that, I mean, it would, it, would, it would take me days and days and days to get through them. But I can tell you the fir- one of the first I ever saw, this was um, uh, after my second meeting with Jesus was in 97. Um, I'm, I'm not sure, but, well, it was Princess Diana. And Princess right, Diana... August of 1997, yes. Okay, August 97. So I, I saw Jesus in Easter of 97. That was the... He was at least 10,000 times as bright as our sun. That was the brightest apparition I've ever seen of him. And when, when I saw Diana, I was... It was daytime. The sun was up. I was in bed. And when I saw her, this is the day after her death. And I worked on landmines for Department of Defense. I worked for a defense contractor. I was president of a company developing new revolutionary technology for landmines. And I had, mm-hmm. I had uh, a very strong interest in contacting her about that. But she was sitting at the, at the end of my bedroom, and she wouldn't leave. And I was so astounded, like, what are you doing here? Like, I mean, you're, she's a world figure. I'm, you know, I'm this guy who had his whole life fall to pieces and was working, you know, got a job and working, you know, for an important physicist. But why here? So I hid under the covers. I, I, I was too afraid to look at her. She was sitting there with a milky white outfit on and her hair, and she just, her golden, you know, kind of hair, and she just looked so dumbfounded as to what had happened to her. And But she was communicating to me telepathically. And then half an hour later, I lift the covers up again, and she's still there. And so I this is after she died in, this is after she died in, 90, in August of 97? The next day. Okay. The next, the next morning. And so I realized that, you know, the power of me meeting Christ in person had given me this ability. But I was like, why me? Why was Diana coming to me? Was it about the landmines? I, I didn't... I, all I could see was she didn't believe it happened. She, she, she knew there was something wrong about her death. It wasn't an accident. That's what I, that's what I was getting from her. And she looked over at me, and I hid under the covers again. Half an hour later, like that's how scared I was. And the sun is up. You know, I'm in my, I'm in my, in my room. And then, and then I look again. A third time, she's still there. And I just, I just about had it. That was. When I, it was like, you know, why is she insisting and why is she staying here? I never went public with the story. This is the first time I've ever mentioned on any uh, public radio show, um, I believe. Um, and it was, that was kind of, you know, a period where I was seeing so many dead people. It, I was starting to get worried that this would, in the rest of my life, I, I would never, you know, because when I see them, they're fully physical. They don't look see-through. They're not vaporous. They have. David, when, I, when no, you saw I'm, her, did you know that she she had passed away already? Did you oh, had, had yeah. you seen the no, news no, already? I, okay. I, I knew on the news, you know, that night. You know, I'm trying to remember if it was the day after her death or the very the day after that. Okay. Um, I, I, it's one of the two. And so anyway, um, 
you know, it's that was the beginning of seeing, you know, so many beings. I've seen Einstein right in front of me. I've seen recently, I've seen um, Isis, the Egyptian chief goddess. I mean, the most supreme. Her Isis and Osiris are the chief deities in the ancient ancient Egyptian mythology, and she was nine feet tall, standing in the corner of my room. I've seen angels glowing with light as bright as car headlights flying around my wife, you know, sleeping next to me. Literally, and they fly right up to my face, and they look right in my eyes, and then they go flying off. And I can see through their skull into this sphere of light in the interior of the skull. And their faces are so beautiful, they I can't tell if they're boys or girls as little angels. And it's just gone on and on and on for years. So that, with that, my educators have been... My teachers have been ascended masters, ascended beings. Um, Archimedes, the great Greek mathematician, was here recently. And so it's kind of like living in a science fiction movie here at, at our house in Sedona, Arizona. I mean, my, my, this doesn't happen every night, and there are periods where months go by and I don't see um, anything, and then all of a sudden they're there again. You know, and I'm going to ask you later, there's something about Sedona, and I've talked to many people about it, and, you know, I question why people live there, and I'm going to ask you later, there must be something there that it's almost like a magnet, it attracts people to be there, and obviously you're experiencing these things, perhaps because there's really an energy vortex there? Um, excuse me. Yeah, grab some water. Some water, yeah. Well, there is a vortex here, and things <clears throat> do amplify. But um, it happened to me in L.A. You know, it would happen to me everywhere I went. It, it wasn't... I think things look clear here as far as the quality of um, the vision itself. Right. I can see them in a much more pristine clarity. In Los Angeles, things were a little more fog, quite a bit more foggy, and... At my mother's house in the Sierra Nevada, they were really clear as well. Like, I mean, pristine. I mean, every millimeter of fabric I can see on this earth. The type of and weave. I I understand that you have a new project out called Mona Lisa's Little Secret that you haven't discussed that much, I, I don't think, and I hope that we do shortly. But before we jump into that, I, I just want to mention, during an interview with Fox News, you said that on September 1st, 2006, Popular Mechanics, and just to jump a little bit on the, the, the technology, Popular Mechanics reported, if we were to destroy this planet, would science find us a new one? What has your research shown you so far? Well, that, it would, that we could find a new planet to live on. I mean, right. the, the idea that was on CNN reporting Popular um, Mechanics or Popular Science, I forget which magazine it was, that if if we destroy this planet, will science find us a new one? And that NASA was out looking for other planets. And I thought, you know, how desperate have we become that we're we're literally willing to destroy this planet when we know that we have reverse engineered UFO technology, that this technology could end oil addiction and end fossil fuels. But we would rather all die than bring that to the world. And whoever's in control, you know, when you think of the, the, the families and the you know, corporations that are in control of all this, you know, what is it about them? Why are they so stubborn that they, they don't want this technology to get out? Because they don't want us to be free. They don't want us exactly. to be able to travel to other star systems. And really, who cares? I mean, there's six billion people here. It would be, it'd be great if two billion of them went out looking in different star systems because we don't all have to be here anymore. 
and to me, it's really sad that this idea that you know people have to be in control is so great that they're willing to destroy the, this most pristinely beautiful planet. And I often think that you know some of the you know ET wars and the craft that are coming down in our atmosphere that ETs are fighting amongst each other over who gets Earth next. You know, so that kind of thing. You know, I've discussed it with Stephen Bassett and others who believe that this closure may be coming soon. And I don't mean to be pessimistic. I'm just being realistic that as long as somebody may lose control, this closure may not happen. I mean, there are obviously cures. There's new free energy, anti-gravitic systems and so on that could liberate us freely. And therefore, I don't believe that slavery ever ended. Aren't we all slaves to those in control? Well, I don't. I think we are slaves. I mean, I think I don't think a lot of people don't realize that. You know, who? It's not the United States government that's in charge, and right. the idea that there's debt and debt is so, you know, compounded to the point that we owe so much money that we simply can't survive. That is one of the biggest illusions, just from a logical perspective. You know, who's playing God with all the money? Who do we owe all the money to? It's not a machine, it's people. And so you look at these people and say, you know, why? There's no debt in nature. Nature will grow food every single day as long as farmers are there to attend to it. There's plenty of water. There's plenty of resources to make homes. There's plenty of people who are unemployed who want to go to work. So where's the debt? The debt isn't even real. It's a game. Of, of oppression that is created by people. And in the end, the whole thing backfires on them because all of their assets become worthless overnight. They lose huge amounts of value in, their, in, in the stock market, but also in their holdings. And for what? You know, they're basically holding us. And one of the things that happened in the beginning of World War II that motivated the war was simply that, you know, and this was on the History Channel, this isn't my own theory, I saw this on the History Channel, that the German people were being made poor because the bankers, who at that time were certain Jewish people, were oppressing everybody and making the Germans poor and taking all the best jobs. And, and so Hitler, you know, Hitler wasn't alone. He just simply flipped out and he kicked, he, he murders, you know, the Jews who are controlling the banking system. And then he goes to Russia and he kills two million Russians. And then he wants to conquer the whole world. I mean, truly an evil man in the sense that evil means taking, taking life and, and taking life force energy. But the point is the war started over money and over oppression and uh, the people who are in control of that money. And that's how the next war is going to start. And what happens at the end of wars is currency is devalued and we start over again so i figure at the present moment obama's you know loaning you know borrowing huge amounts of money from the treasury and bailing out these banks is is a very temporary solution and it's just going to backfire on them and you're going to come to the same position where either you either go to world war three or you just devalue all of the currency and start again at zero and, and sorry, all the debts are erased, because that's what they do at the end of a war anyway. They just devalue and the let's not let's not forget that after the, the 30th Depression, the Fed came to the government and said, how are you going to be able to pay us back? There was no collateral. And the president had to come up with a social security number, which was a label in each American citizen who was born that was more or less the collateral. And I believe right now, I think it's $2 million per person. That would, that's what goes as collateral. Can you believe that? Oh, my God. 
I mean, so this is what I mean. Who is holding us hostage? Do they have guns? Do they have an army? No. The United States has the most powerful military in the world next to Russia and China. So, so if this army is not willing to stand by you to collect your money, how are you going to how are you going to tell us that if we don't pay, you're going to you're going to what? Kick us all out of our houses? Well, then then eventually we'll all be on the street, and then then who's going to do that work for you? You know, who's going to exactly. send the military and the sheriff? So it's really childish and ridiculous who these, these people are that control the money. And, and most people in this conspiracy world know who they are. So they also control a lot of the technology that, you know, is reverse engineered from, from UFOs and from alien you know, civilizations, and that technology could free us. And there's so much evidence of that. I got an interview at Lockheed Martin with senior research scientist Boyd Bushman, who's been there right. 20 years. He built a Stinger missile for General Dynamics, clearly on camera admits to Roswell that we reverse engineer the technology, and this technology is being held up in black projects. And it, if it came out, it would, it would change the world. And he even shows me on camera how anti-gravity works, and since then, I've been able to, you know, it's really easy to do this with a simple lab. I can get a little piece of aluminum to float, float around the lab. And if you could do David, that and scale be, it up. Before you talk, before you talk about Boyd Bushman, I, I did have a question, and then we can jump into Boyd because that's a fascinating story. By the way, I always cringe when I see serious people like you, Stephen Bassett, Nick Pope, and others appear in the media, and I hear the interviewers say, uh-huh, yeah, all right, and there's smirk on their faces. Although many say that finally the mainstream media is talking uh, or taking this topic seriously, could it also be possible that the intelligence apparatus does this, it engages you more, so that they can continue their strategy of ridicule, diversion, distraction? Or do you believe things are truly changing as more and more people come forward, as more countries release their UFO files, of course, except here in the United States? Well, I think the media is not taking it any more seriously when you when you say CNN. I mean, Anderson Cooper interviewed Aykroyd, Dan Aykroyd and I about our DVD, and he had a little smirk on his face too. And when and I Fox told, News too. Yeah, when I told him, you know, um, before they edited that astronaut Gordon Cooper, you know, the same last name and my name used to be David Cooper. I, I mentioned all that to him. Um, and that Cooper, you know, testified to chasing UFOs in Germany in his fighter jet, and they filmed one landing at Edwards Air Force Base. It was all edited out of the, the piece. So, I mean, they're covering it. Larry King is doing a great job at covering it. Um, but, you know, is it is it being taken really seriously? I don't know. I believe during that same interview you alluded, as you were saying before, a Boyd Bushman, a Lockheed Martin senior research scientist, he testified on camera, as you said, that we shut down the Roswell Flying Saucer. I think if you're going to hear from someone this information, you can't get any more credible than Boyd Bushman. Please tell us and continue with what you were saying, the revelations that Bo Boyd Bushman shared with you. Well, Boyd Bushman, you know, when you research him on the USPTO.gov website and you do a simple search and you enter Boyd Bushman, you will see you know, dozens of patents come up that say Lockheed Martin on them. And I've had a few people who say that that isn't true. They can't find them. But every time I go to the website, you either don't know how to spell Boyd Bushman, B-O-Y-D-B-U-S-H-M-A-N, <laughs> and you can't do a simple search because every time I go there, there they are. And I've even had people say that I'm lying, that Boyd Bushman doesn't work for Lockheed. I mean, come on, you guys. If you don't know how to type and you can't enter a simple name, you know, I can do it right now, and it's 
still there. They haven't removed his name and they haven't removed his patents. But the point is he really works for them. And he worked for Howard Hughes, Texas Instruments, the Shah of Iran, and General Dynamics, where he built missiles. And Boyd Bushman firstly testifies that a friend of his is a Navy doctor whom treated a young pilot in 1947 in July, who had just shot down the Roswell Flying Saucer with a classified superweapon. And I ended up identifying the weapon with FBI FOIA files as the Tesla Death Ray, which Tesla said could melt an aircraft engine from 250 miles away. It was in wow. development, according to FBI files, at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, the home location of where the Roswell Saucer was taken. Right. And that was, development started in 43, and the weapon was used in 47, four years later. And this weapon is the most classified weapon in the military today. Where the weapon stands today, I have a lot of information on. And that is one of the reasons why, like, you know, you'll see UFOs really clearly in close down in Mexico, kind of the way I saw the one in Berkeley in 1968. And you don't see that here much anymore because we have this weapon. And this weapon is beyond a nuclear weapon. It's beyond, there's no missile, there's no munition, there's no laser. You can't see a red laser. It's completely invisible. And there are even reports in the FBI files, which are, you know, a lot of UFOlogists know about them. There's 2,700 pages that have, of FOIA files that have been declassified. And they're on, you know, um, they're on foaa.fbi.gov website, a government website, not, you know, some conspiracy website. And I got all of them. And there's a report of a United Airlines pilot who reports that he, he, he sees this static energy coming over all of his instruments, and he's got passengers. He's in the San Francisco Bay Area, and his plane just goes down and everybody dies, and that's in the FBI files, and that's evidence of what happens when the death ray hits your, your craft. So people were probably testing it on commercial airline flights because they didn't really realize how powerful this thing was. And so, you know, on and on again, if, I mean, if you read Ryan Wood's book, um, Majestic, you, you hear, you know, and you see the documentation on multiple, multiple saucer crashes, and so these weapons are very dangerous to the ETs because they, they simply can just fry the circuitry in, in the craft and, and they just can't function. You know, David, so, just talking yeah. about that, talking about that, I frequently mention this when we talk about flying saucer crashing. In this case, let's talk about Roswell, the Roswell crash. We hear it was shut down. We hear it was our radar systems that did something to the craft and it crashed. Regardless of the way in which, if it was true or not, don't you find it a bit, I don't want to use the word pathetic, but the fact that obviously if they came here, they must belong to a more advanced civilization after who knows how many light years, wormholes, or dimensions they came from. And they crashed by themselves or with our weaponry, which to them must be antiquity. What are your thoughts on why these craft crash or are able or permit to be shut down? Well, firstly, when they come into the full physical dimension, um, we know from the NASA UFO um, um, film that I did, and also that NASA has cameras that can see into the invisible, ultraviolet, right. and that's, this is where you see a wealth of, of the phenomenon of UFOs. The UFO I saw in Berkeley went invisible in a split second. So I don't believe they move through the fabric of space. They, move, they actually move through other dimensions where 
the the speed of light limit doesn't you know prohibit their movement. But basically, um, once they come and they make themselves physical, then they are vulnerable to physical forces. And, and they were here. They probably didn't think we had anything like that. They probably witnessed the Trinity site explosion of the first atomic bomb in July 22nd, 1945. And you know, two years later, on all three sides of Trinity, to the plains of St. Augustine, Roswell, and near Trinity, there are three, um, three or four UFO crashes documented, even at Corona, New Mexico. So, so something was going on there. But, you know, everything has a weakness. You know, there's when you're physical, when you enter the physical dimension, you know, you have a weakness. And they, for example, we sent um, several probes to Mars. Were they armed with weapons? No. Um, we thought, you know, if we could find. Um, proof of life on one of the other nine planets, how exciting that would be, but we don't come there armed. And I think when a lot of these UFOs first came into our physical dimension, they really didn't think they would be met with military force. And so, yeah, but, and that's another reason why, you know, so many people see these things showing up on their digital cameras and they didn't see the UFO at the time of photography, but in an invisible dimension, they're there. There's a metallic craft that showed up in their in their photograph, or, or a light craft that's shaped like a saucer. And that's because that's where they are most of the time. They're not here on a full physical plane. Now, with my eyes, I've been able to see these. And the story I'm going to tell you was quite recent. This is amazing. Um, my, my wife was, without me even knowing it, lying next to me in bed last winter, and she was talking to you know, a particular set of ETs about our dog, you know, being beamed up on the ships when, you know, the end times come. And Your wife is talking to the ETs. Yeah, and I didn't, you know, and, okay. and we, you know, we're talking about a particular being named Ashtar, who apparently is a representative of Jesus Christ. And I'm, I'm fully, you know, Jesus is my master 100%. There's no doubt about that in my, in my, my book, that he's the king. But anyway... Um, I don't know if she's doing this, and I turn over. It's, I mean, I, I went to bed really early that night. I was really tired. And I see these three basketball-sized burnt orange and turquoise balls, three of them, and they're buzzing around her head like bees. And like orbs. Real orbs, but they're really three-dimensional, not like the ones people see in their cameras. And they're burnt orange and turquoise. They move really quickly, and they go spinning around her head, and they shoot through the ceiling. And I, I, I just dropped my head, and I went out of body after them, and I saw them go into these light ships. Well, that was, I think, Novemberish. Gary Schwartz, Harvard Yale psychiatrist who's in my film The Voice, um, and he tells me, you know, uh, I think it was over a month later, he's lecturing at Eric Pearl's Reconnection Conference. I tell him this story, and he's like, David, you just got to come to my lecture because he, he, he said, there's no way I can describe what I'm going to show you because that same week... The, they were filming with a very advanced military camera built by Mitsubishi. The military came to Gary Schwartz through, you know, contacts and said that we built this new ultra-infrared camera, $700,000 camera. There's only two of them this good in the United States. And we're seeing things on this camera we can't explain. Could you help us? So Gary took this woman who is a psychic channeler who is channeling a group of extraterrestrials whom... I believe are the same ones my wife was talking to, the Ashtar Command. And, right, right. And on camera, this is not a still camera, this is a motion picture video camera, all black and white. 
you see this basketball three-dimensional orb, not the two-dimensional flat ones you see in the digital cameras. It's, it comes around this woman's head and it moves exactly in the same behavioral patterns as the one that was moving around my wife. By the and way, you're not, ta- you're not talking about Blossom Goodchild or Magenta Pixie here, are you? No. Okay. All right. no, I don't Go even ahead. know who they are. And, and right. this woman is like, you know, being filmed in the infrared, ultra, ultra infrared, not ordinary infrared. And it's the same size and everything, and it spins off and it takes off exactly like the ones that were around my life. Now, I had seen these with my eyes open the size of basketballs several times in our room, and they've spoken to me in perfect English. Now, take that same idea that they can appear invisible because my wife didn't see them. I saw them. And that now we can confirm that you can capture them on a military motion picture camera. And now think of the little balls of light that have appeared in crop circles. And they're the same size like basketballs. You know, we've seen film footage of these things in Crop Circles, The Quest for the Truth by William Gazeki. You see this orb, you know, going by this kid on a tractor. And this fuzzy ball of light comes by him, and he said he sees it, and he just falls asleep. He gets very sleepy. And that's what, when they... So that's, I think they're all the same. And it's really fun to have science confirm that you're not schizophrenic, that you're really seeing something that's really there. It's just in the invisible. And by the way, uh, crop circles is an area that fascinates us a lot. We're going to have Colin Andrews in the near future to discuss them. When we come back, I want to ask you a little bit about the Unplugged documentary that you did with Dan Aykroyd. I also want to finally dive into your new project, Mona Lisa's Little Secret. We're here with David Sarita. This is Mel Fabregas, The Veritas Show. Don't go anywhere. Great music you hear right here on The Veritas Show is supplied by the independent artists from GarageBand.com. If you hear a song you like, go over to our homepage, VeritasShow.com, click on Show Info and Music, look up the song and download it. You can even buy the group's CDs, in many cases right there at GarageBand.com. Listening to the Veritas Show. 
And welcome back to The Veritas Show. This is Mel Fabregas, and we're here with David Sarita, his first show. And he's going to talk to us in a few minutes about his new project, Mona Lisa's Little Secret, which he has not talked about anywhere else, I believe. Am I right, David? I have talked about it on one other show. Um, but okay. I, uh, but, yeah. Well, by, by the way, Unplugged on UFOs, that was a great documentary. How was it working with Dan Aykroyd? How did, you, how did the two of you find each other? Well, I ended up meeting Dan Aykroyd before I ever did my very first radio show with Art Bell in the year 2000 or 2001. And oh. um, he, through a mutual friend, uh, was told that you know I was working on this NASA material and I had all this footage from Martin Stubbs of what appeared to be UFOs going by the space shuttle during space shuttle missions and that NASA... Right. You know, I wrote their chief scientists and, and from different labs, and I found the make and model of the camera, which was actually a test module. It was a, it was one of these super cameras, like I just described with Gary Schwartz, that could see into the invisible ultraviolet. And ultraviolet is divided into three major categories, ultraviolet near, far, and extreme. And this camera, according to the wavelengths, Dr. Joseph Newt III at NASA, head of the astrochemistry branch, told me it could see into the near and the far UV. So I knew it could see into the invisible, and that, and so I hadn't even, you know, basically edited a film, you know, which at that time was evidence the case for NASA UFOs, and it's a very popular film on Google and YouTube. Um, it's had millions of downloads, three-hour movie, and it's very low budget, just me and a chalkboard and the NASA footage. Well, I told, you know, I gave, you know, some copies of the rough footage to Dan Aykroyd, and eventually him and I got to meet. And I found, you know, Dan to be so genuine and sincere and, and a person who was, was deeply mystified by the phenomena of UFOs and, and spiritual phenomena as well. And probably the most educated person in Hollywood, you know, next to Steve Spielberg on the subject. Yeah. And I'm really amazed, like, that, you know, Dan Aykroyd wasn't cast in Men in Black, you know, that... Um, you know, that the people were not more aware of, of how incredible his mind is on these kind of things. He would have been better, he would have been better than Tommy Lee Jones, in my opinion. Yeah, he would, put, he would make a great boss, you know, the head boss. Right, <laughs> right. that's true. So, you David know, we, Elf... we would always have these dinners, you know, he would invite me to dinner at the House of Blues in L.A., and I just realized, you know, we have these incredible conversations. Why don't I just get my video camera and film one of them? So I did, and then... You know, we filmed the conversation, you know, of Dan, and we got a lot of footage. Uh, John Johnston, my partner, and I, we edited the movie, and we got a lot of footage uh, of UFOs from around the world, and and we licensed an interview with astronaut Gordon Cooper, um, you know, from um, um, the guy who did Out of the Blue, James Fox. You know, he, he had filmed Gordon Cooper before he died, and we used parts of the interview that that James Fox didn't use. So we got a lot of interesting interviews, Ken Storch and, you know, John Schusler, who also used to work at NASA, you know, and, and turned it into a DVD. So, you know, the DVD, I got a Hollywood deal with a, a distributor. It started out at Lionsgate, and then it went to a company called Arclight Films. And this is kind of sad. They gave me an advance, and uh, I used most of the money to pay the lawyers and pay for the UFO footage. I, I spent $50,000 of my own money making the film, and I've never gotten a check since. Oh. And it's sold over 150,000 copies. That's so, incredible. And, and, Dan and talking Harvard about Canada. James Fox, 
talking about James Fox, uh, he has a new movie coming out called I Know What I Saw. He's going to be with us in a couple of weeks. Oh, great. I can't wait. To so, David, I, I know it's going to be great. He's a great guy. I love him when he disputes, uh, when he uh, uh, debates the skeptics on, on Larry King. By the way, Larry King seems to me, to, to me, the only one that allows people to really debate and present UFO facts without having the usual smirk as anybody else. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I, I do agree with it, but I'm confused why he won't have me on the show to discuss the Boyd Bushman material, you know, huh. and show it. I mean, he, I have tried to get through there, and it's just impossible. There's just no have way. Have you tried to... through, have you tried to Dan Aykroyd and you? Um, you know, actually, this is ironic, but um, there was a period, it was an anniversary of Roswell, and Larry King's producers asked me to put together a panel that included Dan Aykroyd for Roswell. Dan turned it down because he said that he didn't want to undermine the serious researchers. I mean, he considered himself a knowledgeable celebrity, so he declined to go on the show, and they really held that against me. You know, it mm. was like, hey, and they used everybody else that I picked for the panel except me, and because Dan Aykroyd declined, and I think that may be the reason. I think it's because you're closer to the truth than many, many others, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean... But anyway, David, yeah. I also want to talk about your new film, Mona Lisa's A Little Secret. But first, let me read something, an excerpt. You said, quote, In my new film, Mona Lisa's Little Secret, we take you beyond the Da Vinci Code to a truth so powerful Leonardo da Vinci had to hide its secret in his most famous painting, the Mona Lisa. Are you ready to go beyond the da Vinci Code? Be among the first people in the world to see Leonardo da Vinci's greatest secret about the divine feminine and the true image of God. Just by reading this, David, I want to watch that film right now. Also, something I've learned more and more lately is the divine feminine or the divine femininity. We recently had Robert Morningsky, I don't know if you know who he is, oh, yeah. on his first well, we had him on his first interview here after a 10-year self-imposed retreat, and he thoroughly talked about uh, this during uh, the interview. Tell us what you have learned about the divine feminine. Okay, well, this is, um, you know, what's really interesting is during the three apparitions of Christ that I received, um, October 94, Easter 97, and 1999, um, Jesus was speaking to me in this blaze of light fallen on my face. I looked at him a second each glance in the first meeting, and he was saying things in perfect English that were words that were not in the canonized four Gospels. Some of them were, but some of the words, I, um, in 1994, after my first meeting, I was introduced to Elaine Pagels at Princeton University, who is a professor of religion. I went to her lecture at USC, and the University of Southern California, where she was lecturing on the Gnostic Gospels, and I read every one of them. And by the time I got through reading, you know, for a year, you know, dozens and dozens of Gospels, the Nag Hammadi Library Collection, the Anti-Nicene Fathers Collection, and the Gospel of Thomas, and so forth, I found almost verbatim the same words that, that only further glorify Jesus Christ, don't diminish His glory, don't diminish His position, and what, it, what concerned me about the Da Vinci Code and Dan Brown is, and it was many years later, after I read all the Gnostic material, that Dan Brown became famous, and he wrote this novel, you know, the, the Da Vinci Code. Da Vinci Code, you know, right. Why are you taking material 
and in the end using it to demystify Jesus as an ordinary man because you think he was with Mary Magdalene physically. And I found no evidence of him physically being with Mary Magdalene, but I found evidence that they actually had children, but it wasn't through physical contact. But anyway, when I saw this, I was really furious about Da Vinci Code, and I was quite passionate about it. And two November 11th ago, so 11-11, not this past November, the one before it, going into the night of the 12th, I received, at the foot of my bed, I wake up and I feel this magnitude of energy. It's so magnetic and powerful. And there's a woman in this long um, sapphire blue gown standing at the foot of my bed and she's beckoning me and she's hooded. You know, she's wearing the, like a veil. And she's trying to pull me out of my body. And I was grabbing the sheets with my hands, the blankets, and my wife is asleep. And I just, I don't know who she is, but she's like, you know, she's so powerful. It took all my muscle to say, no, I'm not going out of body. And then she just said, okay. And she said, here's the secret to the Mona Lisa. And I am not, um, you know, I wasn't a guy who was trying to be a Da Vinci Code guy and trying to fight Dan Brown. You know, I simply was a guy who was upset that he showed so many brilliant things, and then in the end he turns it all around to say Jesus was an ordinary but very charismatic man who, you know, who who's not, you know, um, God in the flesh, but is actually just a very charismatic rabbi. Well, I'm sorry. That is not what the Gnostic Gospels say. So what happened was literally the next day, I, I got the message from her is to... I used... Fibonacci mathematics to decode the letters Mona Lisa. And if you look at the painting, you can see she's holding eight fingers to signify that there are only eight letters in Mona Lisa. So you can't add or take away from the number. And the number eight is a Fibonacci number. Fibonacci numbers were invented by Leonardo Fibonacci, who studied mathematics in the Far East, in Arabia, in, in Iran, when his father was traveling there. And he's in like the I think roughly the 12th century. Um, and Da Vinci, of course, doesn't come till two centuries later, you know, 15th century, 16th century. Mm -hmm. So, obviously, Da Vinci study. We know from from um, the uh, the notes of da, of da Vinci that he studied uh, Leonardo Fibonacci. So Fibonacci numbers are 0, 0, 1, 2, 3, 5, 8, 13, etc., and the way you get the sequence of numbers is you keep adding two numbers together to get the next number. So 3 plus 5 equals 8. 8 and 5 is 13, and so forth. And you're supposed to be able to divide the lower number into the higher number. It eventually comes close to the golden mean, which is 1.618. You know, 1 to 1.618, which is the spiral you see in, you know, seashells and you see in ferns and, and even the shape of a baby in the womb, the way the head is curled around the feet. You always see that Fibonacci kind of spiral. Hmm. So what you what we did is we realized from studying, um, you know, the notes of Da Vinci that firstly, you you understand that he did everything in this what he called a mathematical reflectivity, left to right and right to left. And because the French and English read left to right and the ancient Hebrews and the Arabs read from right to left. What we did right. is we took, you know, this is what the, the woman told me to do. Da Vinci said simplicity is the ultimate sophistication, simplicity. All you do is you take apostrophes 
and you place them between the third and the fifth letter, which is Fibonacci sequence, three, five, and eight are Fibonacci sequence numbers. And you do it from right to left and left to right. So when you go from, you know, the way the French read and the, and the Italians and the, and the English, you, the apostrophe ends at the, is placed at the end, mon, and then the next letter is a, then Lisa. So mon alisa. Now in French and Italian, and you can't say, for example, le étoile, which means the star, because you can't have two vowels facing each other. So you say l'étoile, right? L'étoile, right. To, to mean the star. And so and it's the same in Italian. Well, what happens is you can't say mono alisa in, for the same reason, because you have two vowels. So you say mon alisa, which is not the same as mon as in my friend, mon ami, my friend, because it's right. mono. Well... So mono alisa, drop the O, you get mono alisa, so it's the same number of letters, and the, and the apostrophe is between the two. Mono means the singularity, or the monad of God is the singularity of God. And this is something Jesus taught in what was called the Sophia of Christ, a manuscript where seven women and, and all the male disciples after the crucifixion meet on the top of a mountain above the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus shows them and he peers in this blaze of light and he tells the disciples that he was originally the monad that shape-shifted into the masculine Christ and then the feminine Sophia of Christ. And this is how the creation of the universe began and how the universe went from the monad to the masculine and feminine forces. So what happens next is, okay, when, you know, I mean, I'm going to fulfill this, but what happens next is you see that Ali saw in ancient Hebrew means great joy in the feminine. So, so hold on mon, for one second. So mon, we're, we're talking mon as in monotheistic, as in one, right? As in one singular God or the singularity of God. So the singularity Good. of God brings great joy in the feminine. So that's the first translation. Just the letters. You know, we're, we're not looking at the painting yet because we're going to look at the painting next. Now the next apostrophe, because the Arabs and the Hebrews read from right to left, the next apostrophe is between the L and the I. Mona Lisa. You can't say La Isa in French and, and Italian. You have to say La Lisa, meaning L apostrophe Isa. Well, right. it turns out Isa is the name of Jesus in Arabic. It's the name of Isa is the name of Jesus in the Quran. So Mona the Isa, huh. Mona the Jesus. Now this gets really amazing because now what happens is the ancient Hindu, Hindus in the Bhavisha Mahapurana manuscript describe Jesus standing at the base of Mount Kailash in Tibet, where he is being um, being witnessed upon by um, a, a local king who sees that his skin is fair, he's bearded, and he says, I am Isa Masiha, Jesus, meaning Jesus the Messiah. Now what's even more amazing is Isa means woman, and according to um, the, the Jewish uh, Roman historian Joseph, uh, Flavisus Joseph, Joseph, I always, you know, tongue-tying his name, Anyway, he said that in his um, Antiquities of the Jews, was the name of his book, that the name for woman is Isa. Now, why would Jesus, his name in, in Arabic and in Hindu, and Nicholas Nodovich, who went into India in the 18th and 19th century, 
and discovered ancient Christian manuscripts and Buddhist monasteries that describe Jesus as the Isa. Why would his name mean woman? Well, this is where it gets really interesting, because according to da Vinci's letters, Mona the Isa, Mona Lisa, means Mona is actually Jesus. But there were two Gospels. One was called the Acts of John. It's in the Antinicene Fathers Collection. It was banned by Pope Leo the Great because pre-crucifixion, during a great transfiguration, if you know the transfiguration in Matthew where Jesus transfigures and the light becomes so powerful the disciples fall as if dead, just like what happened to me. They can't stand up with all their might. And Moses appears and Elijah appears. You know, that's a transfiguration we know. But in the transfiguration in the Acts of John, he goes and he shapeshifts. Okay, so, you know, what happens is when, when Pope Leo the Great bans the Acts of John, and we're looking inside of the Acts of John, and we see why. I mean, this is really outrageous. In this transfiguration where Jesus transfigures, you know, shining like, you know, blinding light, in the midst of it, John says, because he loved me, he let me come close, and Jesus disrobes. And John literally says, because he loved me, he let me see and look upon his hinder parts, which obviously means, you know, below the waist. And he sees, and John says, and he was not a man at all. And not a man at all can only mean in the negative space that he was anatomically not a man, meaning he was a woman. And it was utterly, you know, devastating to John. And you can see why the Pope, you know, banned the gospel. Because it's really outrageous. Because Jesus is praying in the nude, and then he's showing John that he is actually physically shapeshifted into a woman. Now, to further testify in the Apocryphon of John, another post-crucifixion gospel, 550 days after the resurrection... John is grieving in the desert alone, face in the dirt, starving. All the, the Jews were you know, mocking him, saying, this Nazarene has deceived you, and why do you worship him? And Jesus appears to him, you know, this is 550 days after the crucifixion, in this blaze of light again, and he says, John, John, why do you doubt or why are you afraid? That is, do not be timid. I am the one who is with you always. I am the Father, I am the Mother and I am the Son. I am the undefiled and incorruptible one. And as he's saying this, he's shape-shifting from an old man with a white beard, whom we've never seen Jesus live to be old. And then he comes into the young man with the beard, and then into a woman, physically, and in the blaze of light. Of course, this is after the crucifixion. So, once again, Jesus has done the shape-shifting into the Sophia, the feminine aspect of God. And what's interesting about it is, you know, when... You know, when we had decoded the letters, Mona Lisa, meaning Mona the Jesus, Mona the Isa, and we confirmed in three different cultures that Jesus' name is Isa, and that Isa means woman, we could only deduct that Mona is actually the feminine Christ. And before we get the absolute proof, what's really amazing is when we, in the film Mona Lisa's Little Secret, we interviewed just anybody, you know, artists, you know, ordinary people about who had actually seen the Mona Lisa. And we said, you know, what is she to you? And so many people for years have thought that she's kind of androgynous. She could be a man. She could be a woman. She has very stubby fingers, very masculine fingers. But, you know, the, the face is unmistakably a woman. And well, what's amazing is I didn't know this when the woman appeared in the sapphire gown at the, at the foot of my bed. But I had no idea that the French and the Canadian government had x-rayed her, had x-rayed the Mona Lisa, 
And there was no major press about it. I remember a tiny article about it um, that came to my memory, you know, after we had decoded the letters that Mona is really Jesus. And when you look at the x-ray, and you see this in the film, you know, in a time-lapsed exposure, you can see the surface of Mona Lisa, and then the x-ray, which is just allows, you know, light photons to penetrate deeper into the underlayers of the painting, clearly is the portrait of Jesus Christ. With the beard, with the, the with what was called the payoff, my wife noticed this, Crystal, she noticed this, that, that Jesus had the beard, the marred corn, you know, in the... Old Testament, you know, God tells the Jewish rabbis that you cannot mar the corners of your beard. So you see those long beards on the corners of the right. Jewish rabbis when they're when they're praying to the wailing wall. And then you uh-huh. see the blood coming down the eye from the crown of thorns so that you know it's clearly the portrait of a Jewish rabbi with a beard and you see the blood which is which makes it unmistakably that tortured Jewish rabbi Jesus Christ. And of course we know da Vinci painted you know, religious iconography, and he painted, you know, portraits of Christ and Mary Magdalene and, and the Virgin Mary. Now, so we know that, that Jesus is clearly under the Mona Lisa. And, and when I finally remembered that I heard one report about it, all they said in this a very small news channel is that da Vinci must have made a painting of Jesus, and he just painted over it. And there was so, no David, the difference between the da Vinci Code and Mona Lisa's little secret, are you saying that Mona Lisa is in actuality Jesus? Yes, that Mona Lisa is da Vinci's interpretation of the transfigurative Christ that could shapeshift from the woman to the man, and back into the woman again, and back into the man, which he, which we know in these Gospels he did, and we know because da Vinci is born in, um, you know, he's born at the end of the 15th century. You know, he's born, um, um, and this is really, really amazing that you know the date of his of his birth. Um, uh, da Vinci um, is born. Um, let's see here. I'm just going to get it really quick here because it's been a while. He's born April fifteenth, fourteen fifty-two. Well, this is really amazing because the very next year, fourteen fifty-three, is when the Muslim conquerors conquer the Church at Constantinople, which is now Turkey. Right. And all of the power goes to the Catholic. Catholic means one united church. That's actually the translation of the word Catholic. It means one united. And that all the power would go to Italy. And that the Inquisition... Now, what actually happened prior to this actual time is there were several um, at Nicaea. There were several councils in Turkey, in, in Constantinople under the church, where they actually voted on all these Gospels that were circulating all over the empire, you know, all over the Roman Empire. And they were trying to burn them. They were trying to get rid of them. And the Catholic Church in Italy, which hadn't established itself as the one United Church of the world, it basically had its opponent over in Turkey. And so women were not allowed to vote on the other apostles and the other gospels, which is really outrageous considering Jesus had at least 12 disciples. And we know there were three to seven women in the Gnostic literature. And women were not allowed to vote. Now, in... In order for a true providence, providence means that the presence of God presided over the council, and the council educated the world to believe that God was present during that council, and that the decision to to sequester the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, was ordained by God. And what what made the distinguishing differences between a lot of the Gnostic Gospels, such as the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, 
and and so forth, were that all these other Gospels spoke about the Sophia, the Sophia of Christ, the feminine aspect of Christ. And they were very, very rich in that. And they were also very rich in the need to attain personal enlightenment to, to be saved, that you couldn't just be saved because you were baptized. Those were the major differences. So what ended up happening is after the first two councils at Nicaea, which are in the, you know, the 2nd and 3rd century A.D., there, be, there comes another um, council at Hippo in North Africa. And so the time of da Vinci that he is living, where he's literally living in the face of the most ruthless um, inquisitions, the, the Spanish Inquisition and the Catholic Inquisitions were so ruthless that obviously we put, um, it, this was actually after da Vinci's time, we put uh, Galileo in prison because he exactly. challenged the church's view that the the earth was the center of the universe so obviously we you know we know now that the earth is not the center of the universe and if the church believed that they had providence that god presided over their decisions then why do they believe the earth was the center of the universe and now we know it isn't we truly know that there was no providence and that that even in american culture women were not voting in the 1920s even they weren't voting you know, even in the 50s, it was very rare for women to vote. And then, of course, women come to their voting and their power to vote in the modern day. So when we David, look at... On yeah. a side note, on a side note, just a quick parenthesis, I just thought about the Vatican and the fact that a progressive pope finally listened to the people when they felt that the church did not embrace science, so he built an observatory at Castel Gandolfo, and in 1980, they they scouted for property elsewhere around the world with good skies, and they found one in Arizona, and they have one of the largest telescopes in the world. What do you think that the, why do you think the Vatican is so interested in space and the cosmos? Well, on a side note, I think they're so interested because they're convinced that there's something going on there with, you know, with the, the, the greater intelligence of the universe and other divine, you know, beings in the cosmos. In the same way, you know, Pope John Paul, who just passed away before our new pope, he actually in 1997 wrote in a famous letter to artists worldwide that artists should now include when they paint the image of God to include the feminine and the masculine in the image of God. Mm. So I think the Pope knows. Of course he's seen the x-rays of the Mona Lisa, and of course they know everything I'm saying, and they know they made a big mistake, but they don't know how to come forward to the public and say, you know, we were wrong about our views about Earth being the center of the universe. We were wrong about not including the divine feminine, the Sophia, in the Gospels. We know that the Inquisition would have murdered da Vinci, which is why I think he took the Mona Lisa to France, and the you know King Louis of France actually become you know purchases the painting and he keeps it under under his safety. So it and that's leaves, why that's why it's so cryptic. Exactly, and he had to hide the secret. Now, what's interesting about the human brain is you know just like I'm describing that UFOs are in invisible dimensions and with ultraviolet sensitive cameras you can see them. With an ultraviolet sensitive camera, you can probably see the image of Christ under the Mona Lisa because, you know, beyond ultraviolet extreme are x-rays, and that's what we use to see. But the brain actually perceives those invisible x-rays, but it doesn't see it ocularly. The eyes don't see it, but you know the image of Christ is under there. Why is the Mona Lisa the most famous painting in the world? It's just a portrait of a woman. I mean, surely a model, you know, Lisa... 
the the woman Lisa became the the model who posed, but that's not what the painting was about. It has nothing to do with the subject that he used to to make his illustration. But the point is, the brain can perceive that it's so holy that there is a holy vibration about her, because it's actually, without even knowing it, subliminally seeing the the X-ray of Jesus underneath of it. And da Vinci understood that. He understood that if he put an image underneath it, the subliminal quality of the mind would perceive it, which is why for generations people have said it's a woman and it's a man, because they've known. And that, that what I'm saying is that Mona Lisa was his, his interpretation of the shape-shifting Christ that can go from the masculine to the feminine, Mona the Isa, Mona Lisa. And David, is there, is, are there any images out there for the public to see on those x-rays? Well, you can see them in my film, Mona Lisa's Little Secret, because they're, they were uh-huh. photographed by government. You can see it really clearly. I mean, on the Canadian government website, it's a very tiny little image, so you can see it, but it's very, very micro-small. They don't, they don't blow it up for you. So I was able to get a you know higher resolution, larger image of it, and so it's it's on this Canadian. I don't have the website in front of me right now, so it's a really long address. Like it's not like a simple little website, but anyway, it's there. It's it, it's I, I quote it in the film, and people can. I also have the book, Mona Lisa's Little Secret, which is way more detailed at, at lulu.com forward slash David Sarita for those people who want massive details. But now go. We're going back to the woman in the sapphire gown because this gets into really amazing Da Vinci Codeism. The woman, now, you notice how, I didn't know this, because, you know, who is the woman in the sapphire gown who appeared at my bed and taught me how to decode the Mona Lisa? Mm-hmm. Well, notice in Da Vinci's paintings, he paints the Virgin Mary in the blue, deep, deep blue sapphire gown, and he paints Mary Magdalene in the blue sapphire gown in The Last Supper. Well, what I learned was you go back to the time of Aaron, the brother of Jesus, of the brother of Moses, and the old, you know, ancient male priests before they entered the temple to commune with God, they wore the blue ephod, the deep blue sapphire. It's actually sapphire color blue, and they would cover that with the breastplate of gems before they went up onto the mountain to pray to commune with God. So we know that, you know, why did not only da Vinci, but many other Renaissance painters painted the women priestesses wearing the blue ephod? Well, once again, we have removed the high women priestesses from history and from the history books, and that they were allowed in the temple to be wearing the sacred blue ephod. And that is what I realized was who the woman was who appeared at the foot of my bed. It was either the Virgin Mary, it was Mary Magdalene herself who was wearing the sacred robe. And you'll see this in all of da Vinci's paintings of, of the holy women wearing the, that colored robe. You know, I find some commonality among certain luminaries from the past, you know, Leonardo da Vinci, Jules Verne, Nikola Tesla, and many others. There are, these are people that seem to have acquired knowledge and a vision from out of this world. No pun intended. How do you think that happened? Well, I think it happened the same way, you know, things happen through the process of insight. You know, through practicing insight meditation every day for 30 years, I was able to see, and I am able to see still, invisible beings. I think people like da Vinci and people like Einstein and Tesla and Madame Curie and and Lise Meitner, many of these, you know, male and female geniuses, have the ability to peer into the invisible. Even in the movie Beautiful Mind, if you read the book about John Nash, it was when right. 
he calculated invisible dimensions. He could prove they existed mathematically that he started seeing parallel universes. And they say he went schizophrenic because he couldn't handle what he was seeing. He was seeing alternative histories to Earth, you know, histories that, you know, we don't experience right now. So when what happened is when the mind of a, of a researcher gets that deep, that you're not just looking in books for answers, you're, you're peering into consciousness itself, your teachers become superluminal beyond Earth, you know, beyond what we call light beings and ascended masters from our ancient history. They teach you in person, and when they teach you in person, the things you're able to do are are utterly transcendent. And this is where you get knowledge explosions. You know, this is where where you get massive revolutions in, in thinking and understanding. And so Leonardo Fibonacci, Leonardo da Vinci, you know, St. Francis of Assisi, you know, these people all lived with, and Dante Alighieri, who wrote the Divine Comedy, they all lived sure. within a hundred years of each other. So in Italy, you have this massive knowledge explosion that happened to several individuals. And that was one of the turning points in history. And we will come back. David, I want to talk about Tesla, your lab, laboratory, and something that probably the powers that be don't want the population to know, the harmonic codes. So if you want to know about this, Stay there. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com. Click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more. Sala, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. <laughs> 